Hey, good morning, everyone. It's so good to have you come on in and have your seats. We look forward to uh, sharing with you today and this opportunity to be able to praise God uh, together. So this is the day that the Lord hath made. Oh, that lacked some passion. This is the day that the Lord hath made. There, there we go. So uh, look forward to uh, worshiping with you. Um, I encourage you, um, if you're looking for information about what's going on, there are some sheets that you probably were, would have been given um, when you came in. Uh, the QR code that uh, Tim talked about last week uh, is there. You can scan that uh, for information. Uh, there are a number of things. I won't go through any, uh, actually any of them today. Um, on the back, uh, just see... As well, uh, if you want to contact any of us, uh, pastors or elders, our contact information is on the back. It's got our telephone numbers and email addresses. I encourage you to do that. One other tool we'll ask you, actually two other tools we'll ask you to suggest. Um, one is our website. Um, our website is being constantly updated, and I thank Christina for doing that. Uh, so on the website, yeah, thank Christina. Thank so if you go to the website, thechapelnj.org, there is another church that uh, took our name. I'm sorry. Um, so if you search for The Chapel, that's not enough. You need to look for thechapelnj.org. And on that website, you'll find information uh, of major things that are going on here at the church. And then the third way, so you have this tool, um, you have the website, and the third tool is uh, if you're not on the mailing list, the email mailing list, do me a favor and go out to the Welcome Center and tell them that you want to get on the newsletter. A newsletter comes out every week, if not multiple times a week with information. That is how you can find out about what's going on here at the chapel. Well, let me pray for us as we begin uh, this time and look forward to worshiping with you. So, Father, I just thinking about uh, people who pass away and people who are struggling and a uh, pastor that I listened to and um, uh, learned a lot through, uh, passed away this past weekend, Lord. And I, I thank you for the fact of a life uh, well-lived. We thank you for a life that honored you. Um, Father, we pray that our lives would do the same. Uh, there's some of us here in our congregation that are struggling with health issues, relational issues, mental issues, emotional issues. Uh, the list goes on, Lord. And you know them, Father. They're, they're too many for me to list even this morning. Um, Father, you know their struggles. You know their difficulties. You know their challenges. You know the pains and the, and the questioning that they go through right now. And I pray that you would remind them that you're a God who hears, a God who is near them, a God who loves them, a God who leads them, that you can take them through the suffering and that you can produce perseverance and, and hope, Lord. I pray for that. I thank you for the awesome privilege that we have to worship you, Father. I think of believers around this world today that don't have this privilege, or they come to worship you and they're at threat of their lives, Lord. I thank you that we can come in relative peace, so help us to praise you for that. And because of that, Father, help us to worship you abundantly. And I pray that you do protect those believers around this world today that are struggling. 
Uh, some may lose their lives today for their faith. Father, take them to heaven as you know you will, as we know you will. Today, Father, as we sing songs, as we pray, as we hear your word, fill us by your spirit. Help us to see your son. Help us to reflect you. In Jesus' matchless, holy, and powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you join us and stand and sing <clears throat> worship songs with us this morning? the power of sin and darkness, whose love is mighty and so much stronger, the King of glory, the King above all kings, who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder and leaves us breathless in awe and wonder, the King of glory. The King above all kings. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You lay down your life. That I would be set free. I sing for all that you've done for me. Who brings our chaos back into order? Who makes the orphans a son and daughter? The King of glory, the King of glory, who rules the nations. With truth and justice Shines like the sun In all of its brilliance The King of glory The King above all kings This is amazing grace This is unfailing love That you would take my place That you would bear my cross you laid down your life that I would be set free. Oh, Jesus, I sing for all that you've done for me. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. 
been won and I shall overcome yet not I but through Christ in me no fate I dread I know I am forgiven the future sure the price it has been paid for Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon and he was raised to overthrow yes to this I hold my sin has been defeated Jesus now and ever is my plea oh the chains are released I can sing I am free yet not I but through Christ in me With every breath I long to follow just the voices. And day by day I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to Him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's sing it again. To this I hold. My hope is only Jesus, all the glory evermore to Him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. When the race is complete, Still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Find their way 
at the sound of your great name all condemned feel no shame at the sound of your great name the enemy he hath no place at the sound of your great name the enemy he has to leave at the sound of your great name jesus worthy is the lamb that was slain for us the son of god and man you are high and lifted up and all the world will praise your great
the Son of God and man, you are high and lifted up, and all the world will praise Jesus. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain for us, the Son of God and man, you are high and lifted up, and all the world will praise your grace. And before I read the passage that Pastor Tim's going to preach from this morning, um, I want to just give you one quick announcement. Um, so uh, believe it or not, we're only three weeks away from our uh, VBS, and our VBS is starting in three weeks. So, um, And Sherry Miller would have loved to be up here to give an announcement, but she is back serving in the nursery this morning, uh, so I'm up here to give you the announcement. Uh, on the sheet that you saw there, you saw the QR code um, that you can scan, and um, you can register there. Uh, for some of you, that just seems so overwhelming, so we've got a second way you can register. You can go on the website, and right on the front page, you will see a button that is there, and it has uh, registration, VIP registration, right on the front page. And if you are really, really old school, they will be at the table right after service. And uh, just do me a favor, you can go out there after the service, and uh, they you could sign up your children. Um, and volunteers. We really want to sign up church, family, children first so we know um, how many are there. One of the uh, great blessings is that all the volunteers, the key volunteers, have been um, assigned. Uh, so what we are missing are guiders. Um, it's usually high school students and college age students. So if any of you are interested, please go out there and sign up. Um, and we are looking forward. The easiest position is the guide. All you're doing is just kind of shuffling kids from one group to another. Uh, so we'd encourage you to do that. So once again, Sherry and her team will be out at the table after service is over. And uh, let me read our passage that Pastor Tim is going to be preaching from this morning. It is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be picking up verse 8 through the beginning of verse 14. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Um, through the beginning of verse 14, this is the word of the Lord. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. 
For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and the ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. This is God's sufficient, eternal, authoritative, life-giving, and life-changing word. Would you pray with me? So, Father, I thank you for the great model that your Son has provided us in the sufferings of this world. He lived perfectly and righteously for us, but then he gave us a model of how we are called to follow. We're called to serve as he served. We're called to teach as he has taught. Lord, I pray that as we deal with the injustice that comes at us when we have done right, help us to remind ourselves that our Savior did that for us. I pray for my brother this morning, Tim. Father, there's an immense privilege of getting in the pulpit and preaching, but there's an immense uh, responsibility as well. Uh, So I pray uh, for my brother. I pray that you would fill him with your spirit. I pray for our congregation that we would be have ears to hear, hearts that are open to hear your word, and to honor you. In Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen. Children, you could be dismissed for junior church. All right, good morning, everyone. Good to uh, be here and good to uh, see you this morning. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of First Peter, chapter 3 and verse 8. And uh, we're going to work through this uh, rather fascinating portion of Scripture together. So 1 Peter 3 and verse 8. Most of you are probably familiar with what we mean when we talk about chameleons, okay? Uh, there are a, a number of uh, perhaps insects or other types of animals that you have seen that had this capacity to blend in with their surroundings so that their presence is undetected. And that would be the main feature, right? Blending in so that one's presence is undetected. This text that we look at this morning calls us to stand out from the prevailing culture by following the example of Christ in attitude and actions. Something that we as the church are to be. And you can think back on the words of Christ when he is uh, kind of working with the incubator of the early church. And he says to the early church, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth, right? So there's this call on the part of the church to be public, to be visible, to be engaged, right? But the truth is that sometimes that engagement leads us into circumstances that we would rather avoid, And so for many people, their Christian experience is much more like a chameleon than it is like being light in the world that we live in, okay? And I want to work through this text that deals with advice for specific settings in which God has called us to be light. And we've looked through that over the last three to four weeks. If you go back to chapter 2 and verse 13, you find that there is this call to take your place, to fulfill your God-given role in a few different settings. One of those is in the realm of government, our relationship to civic authorities. And the second one was to represent Christ in the context of our workplace. Even if we have a boss at work, an employer who is unfair, 
who is at some level unjust, we are called to live justly in that setting. And then at the beginning of chapter three, he began to deal with the role of relationships between husbands and wives. And the call there was to find your proper place in the context of those relationships. Okay, today the text makes a very distinct move at the beginning of verse eight. I want you to see the word that begins that. It says, finally, all of you be like-minded. Okay, so you just got to step back for a second and say, okay, so what audience specifically is Paul addressing? Okay, and I think it would be very clear that Paul is addressing the church as a whole. All right, so this would be a letter written to churches to give them guidance and an understanding of how they are to live well together as being lights in the world that God has called them to live in. So the first section of this text deals with and answers the question, how should we relate within the church? Okay, and that is, what is my relationship to you? What is your relationship to me? And what is our relationship to each other? Because the call of this text is broad, all of you, and this is, so he's working from specific responsibilities to this general context of body life. What is it that I am to do for you? How am I to treat you? What are the, the attitudes or the virtues that I should be cultivating as we seek to find our fullness as representatives of God's glory in Christ in the world in which he has called us to live? So let's look first at this quick list of attitudes that enrich and protect our body life and that, that refuse to allow the hostility that is common in the world that we live in to seep into our relationships in the body of Christ. There is to be something distinct and different about the body of Christ. And these attitudes that Paul will list, I think will help us to resist the tendency towards hostility, towards brokenness and shame in our relationships. So let's work through this. Finally, all of you, and I want you to watch these five statements, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and be humble. So I'm just going to work through this very quickly, just to give you a bit of a, what I'm going to say is a bit of a sketch. All of these are implied in the imperative, okay? They're obviously adjectives to be humble, uh, to be sympathetic. Uh, Everything that's listed really is adjectives, but there's an imperative force behind every one of them. So they're calls to action or calls to specific kinds of attitudes that will enrich our life together. So let's look through this list that I think is not meant to be exhaustive, okay? There's things that you could add in here. Obviously, if you read through uh, the list from Galatians 5.22, the fruits of the Spirit, there's more that can be said, but this is a bit of a representative statement of what we are to look like. So first of all, all of you be like-minded. And the word I'm gonna use to define that is the word harmonious. It, It is to be an individual that is seeking what is best for the whole, not what is best for me individually, okay? And that, I I think most of us know, that is not always an easy decision to make, right? We're, I've been hanging out with some toddlers over the last couple years, okay? They're called grandchildren, okay? Which means they're related to you and reflect your attitudes, all right? And uh, as I'm with them, I realize that this like-mindedness, this idea of harmony is not something that naturally occurs for humanity, right? We need rules and guidelines and teaching 
about how to prefer others above ourselves, and in so doing, to promote an, an, an environment that is harmonious, that is a blessing, that is like-minded, and that is enjoyable to be in. The second word he uses is be sympathetic. Interesting word. Sympathy simply means to care deeply, to feel what others feel. Folks, let me just, just direct point, okay? If you don't spend time with brothers and sisters in Christ, there is no way that you can fulfill this command. If you're not in relationship with people, you cannot sympathize with them because it is impossible for you to understand the concerns, the, the, the struggles, the weaknesses, the fears. You must be with them to sympathize together. And the next thing he says is this idea of love. Loving one another. The word literally is to practice brotherly love, which is an acknowledgement that as the body of Christ, we are more than just a gathering of people at a concert or at an event. When we gather, we gather as the family of God, as brothers and sisters, which means that we, by God's grace, have been called into a relationship that is permanent and unbreakable. And we need to learn to value this concept of life together that should be characterized by an affection, a permanent commitment to one another in the body of Christ. We're not simply acquaintances but we value the preciousness with each other. We understand that the woman beside me in a church gathering is my sister in Christ, and that the man that I meet in the context of the church gathering is my brother in Christ. We are deeply bound together and permanently bound together, and it is logical, therefore, that we would so value that, that we would spend time together so that these virtues and attributes can be manifested in our lives. The next word is this, and be compassionate. Compassion is a very interesting word. The, the equivalent to it in the Old Testament talks about the inner parts, okay? I don't know if you've ever said to someone, you know, when I heard that, or the more I thought about that, my stomach was in knots, okay? And what we're trying to say is that, that there's a very real sense in which in our, in our gut, we feel certain things, right? And that's the idea of the word here. It, it, it carries with it these notions of deep affections, of deep feelings that we experience from one another. So this week I had a, an interesting experience in my life. I uh, was working on the shower valve in our uh, tub in the downstairs bathroom of our house. And I, I, I'm, I'm a mechanic at some level, okay? Some people sometimes think I'm more dangerous than I am a mechanic, but for some reason I was holding this Phillips head screwdriver in my hand, and it was pointed up, and I was trying to work this valve. I had this thing called a stem puller, so I had screwed the screw into that, and I was, uh, I was trying to see if it was loose, because once it's loose, then you can tighten that screw, spin the handle, and pull the valve. So I was going like this with this screwdriver in my hand, and the wrench slipped off the plastic gear that I was trying to leverage, and the screwdriver moved upward. Okay, and I ended up poking myself in the, thank God, in the white portion of my eye. Okay? 
So people are like, what happened? I honestly don't remember what happened. <laughs> I don't think I screamed. My wife was right down, down at the end of the hall. I, I sat with my eye closed for a while because I was like, I don't know what I hit. I mean, I know I hit my eyeball, but I don't know what I hit. And then I, when I finally got brave enough, I stood in front of the mirror and started blinking real quick to see, first of all, do I see light? All right, and thank God I did. And then I kept blinking further, and I was like, okay, I can actually see myself, which in that case, Sandy, was a pleasant sight. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> and beautiful, too. Okay? And uh, so word gets around in my family, with my immediate family, we have a little group text, and so I kind of opened my eye, I took a picture of it, because they're my medical advisors, right? Two of them are nurses, one's a therapist, physical therapist, and I was like, okay, I, I, I need to kind of report this, so uh, I did that. The reason I reached out to them was I expected compassion. Because <laughs> the next day, I, I was talking to my brother Kenny on the phone. How's it going? Oh, pretty good, except for poking myself in the eye with the number two Phillips head screwdriver. Well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> no sympathy, no compassion, okay? I knew with my girls it would be full-on love, right? It would be a love day. Did you do this? Yes, yes. I... So thank God. And it, now you're like, I don't close these stories sometimes, and then you're like, well, what happened? It, thank God this morning I feel virtually 100%. So from a fairly... Uh, traumatic moment in which I needed express compassion. I called my doctor, Dr. Leslie, and asked her what I should do, and uh, so I, I thank God for that. So when you, when you look at this, the last thing that he says is this. He says, be compassionate and be humble. To be humble means to value others above yourself, not acting like a servant, but genuinely being deferential. Humble means to, 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 to submit yourself to people around you for their benefit, to defer to them, to change your plans so that they can be benefited, to adjust what you like so that they can experience something that blesses them. All right, this is the calling of God for us as the church. Now, when I read through a, a list like this, I, I don't know what happens to you, but I read through a list like this, I at some level feel overwhelmed. I'm kind of glad that Peter reduced it to a list of five, right? Made it a little more uh, something that I can kind of get into my mind and meditate on, okay? But here's what I want you to realize. I want you to realize that these virtues don't arise in my life by me trying harder, okay? Do you understand what I'm saying? These are virtues that come by surrender to the Spirit of God. These are virtues that he wants to cultivate in your life as you surrender your selfish, proud, uh, non-compassionate heart to him. He wants to change you, right? And it, so if you go to Galatians chapter five, you'll find that many of these things show up in the list of the fruits of the spirit. And here's the truth. Fruit takes time to develop. The tree needs to be pruned and worked. And that is the same thing that is true of our lives. We need to submit ourselves to the work of God that is aiming to change us by the work of his spirit. He is not simply asking us to make a better decision. 
He is asking us to surrender. He's not asking us to put on a mask and to act compassionate, to act act sympathetic, to act tenderhearted. That's not what he's asking me to do. He's asking me to surrender to the Spirit of God so that he will bring a total transformation in my life that benefits the body of Christ to which he has called me to serve. And folks, that's true for every one of us. God has given us his spirit to produce in us a beauty that is not naturally occurring. Chapter 1, verse 3 reminds us of this, doesn't it? It tells us that, that he has caused us to be born again, to be made new, which is the initial work of God. But here's the other truth you need to know. Salvation is always followed by sanctification. Sanctification is an, an, an enduring purification of my heart so that the likeness of Christ begins to emerge in beauty. Folks, that's what we need for each other. This is how we ought to relate in the church with a life surrendered to the work of the Spirit so that the virtuous work of the Spirit of God is being manifest in the context of relationships. Why is that needed? It's needed because I live in a hostile world. I live in a world that often is, 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 is fraught with struggle and tension and fighting and arguing. And how do we as the church keep that at bay since it is so naturally occurring? How do we resist that tendency and be the church that God is calling us to be in this text? All of you. All of you. God isn't calling the, 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 the core people in the context of a church to be like this. He's calling all of us to contribute to this. There are no insignificant or unimportant parts of the body of Christ that God is seeking to build. Every individual matters. And every, all of you, need to be conscious of allowing this work of the Spirit of God, this transformation of character, causing to flow out of me a harmonious spirit, a sympathetic attitude, a brotherly love, a deep compassion, a humble heart that will change us to be what we ought to be for the glory of God. So the first question, how do we relate together in the church? Adopt these attitudes that enrich our life together. Secondly, what simple truth or directive is in this text that protects our life together. Because here's what happens. If you get committed to being the church, if you begin to take seriously being the body of Christ, and you seek out context in which you can live life together, share life together, and you're trying to bring in those virtues, you're gonna find that there's something in the context of the church, and that is this. There are people who are broken. There are people that will hurt you. Okay, sometimes that's true of me. I don't mean that I am hurt. I mean that sometimes I will miss or I'll express an attitude that is not helpful and hopeful or beneficial to you. May God help us. But we need to be, be, be very aware that when I'm in the church, I'm not with a group of perfect people. That's not a newsflash. That's not an announcement. It's an observation. Okay, and hopefully it's an observation that all of us made. I live in an imperfect world. The body of Christ, you should not come expecting to find a perfect church because your presence will render that an impossibility. 
You understand what I'm saying, right? As does mine. Okay? We all bring brokenness. We all bring needs. But we are all needed, while at the same time as we talked about in men's Bible study on Monday night, being needy. We all come with pronounced gifts, unique capacities that God has given us to make a difference in someone else's life. We all can serve each other in that way, but we also come needy. I need your ministry in my life because that's the nature of a body. Every part is critical to healthy function. And any missing part causes that body to be handicapped and at some level have limited function, different than original design. So what's the simple directive that helps us to protect the preciousness of what it means to be the body of Christ. Look at verse nine. It's, it's really interesting. This is like, like he goes from positive to negative very quickly, okay? So watch. Finally, all of you have these virtues. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called that you might inherit a blessing. So what's the directive that protects the unity of the church? Okay, please listen to how I say this. It is not if you are offended by someone else's behavior in the church. It's when. Okay? It's not if you'll be offended. It's not if you'll be wronged. It's when you are. That's the presumption of this text. Okay, why? Because I live in a broken world. I live among sinful people. They may be children of God, but they have the unique struggles that I have. And at some point along the way, the closer we get and the more like family we become, the more we can anticipate that there will be times when healing and forgiveness is needed. So when I'm wrong, how should I respond? First of all, here's what Peter says. He says, no retaliation. It is utterly prohibited. And I love how he stretches this out a little bit. Do not repay evil with evil. That's actions. And do not repay insult with insult. Okay? If you insult me, the the impulsive response of my heart is not to love you. Okay? Okay? If you insult me in my flesh, apart from the work of the Spirit of God, I want you to pay for what you did to me. Or I want you to pay for what you said to me. That is unlearned, involuntary, desperately in need of the correction and the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what what Peter anticipates here is something that he has seen in his own life. Okay, if you go back and study through the Gospels, you understand that Peter got into a few misunderstandings with the other disciples. And Jesus was so quick to call his disciples to selfless love and humility and compassion and sympathy and to love each other and to forgive each other from the heart. Why? He was passionate about maintaining the unity of the body of Christ. And the way that is done is by getting to a place in my life where when I am wronged, I don't automatically wrong back. Okay, when I do counseling, here's the way I advise in the area of conflicts. Don't respond. Or I'm sorry, let me say it this way. Don't react, okay? 
As I learned this week, you go to poke someone in the eye, there's a quick reaction, right? Don't react, respond. The difference is one is thoughtful. It is contemplative. It thinks about how my response is going to affect that person. When I'm reacting, it's, it's involuntary. It's impulsive. And it is almost always devastating. And so, as Peter writes, he, he prohibits, he forbids retaliation in action and in word. Why does he say that? Because the tendency to escalate is utterly predictable. Okay? It is always going to go to bad places if when I'm wronged, I wrong back, and here's what happens. Things start to climb a ladder, and they escalate, and all of a sudden, you're saying things that you never thought you could say because you never understood how ugly your heart can be. That's what happens. And it ramps, and it ramps, and it ramps. And the sad thing about retaliation is this. Retaliation implies that my response is justifiable. You understand what I'm saying by that? If I'm retaliating, it assumes that you already took a step in my direction. You already wronged me in some fashion, so therefore my response is justified. Here's the danger. My response quantitatively will almost always exceed the offense that came against me. That's why Peter, he doesn't suggest that we tone it down. He prohibits it. And then he gives an imperative to offset it, right? He says, but pay back, verse 9. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called. Don't retaliate. Don't give evil for evil. Instead, give a blessing instead. Now, folks, listen. The church is not to be known simply for being non-reactive. Okay? Sometimes you can think of pacifism as, I take the hit and I don't respond. I grimace. I bear it. But I don't respond. Is that righteous? Is that the behavior that God is calling for? You hurt me, I withdraw all support from you. Oh, I never said anything negative about you. I never hit you back. But I simply quietly withdraw. And sometimes we feel like that passive response that withdraws from broken relationships to be a biblical response. And folks, here's what I want you to know. That will always destroy the body of Christ because you will begin to live in isolation and you will be vulnerable because you are needy. And when your needs aren't being met, things are not going to move in a positive direction. Okay, so this text calls us to not retaliate, but to pay back with blessing. The idea there is favor. Christians are, are to be known for active love, Jesus. And John 13 says to his disciples, by this all men will know that you were my disciples if you, rascals, love one another. Do you understand that? If that group of disciples in fits and starts at it with each other all the time, clawing at each other, wanting to be above the other, if they could learn the value of an active love for one another, not simply don't respond, don't respond. No, respond. 
When you're wounded, respond with a favor, respond with a blessing. That's the call of Christ in this text that is so very powerful. In 1 Peter 1.21, it says this. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And Christ endured his suffering in silence without, without screaming back, without accusing. He bore it and responded with the grace of his beautiful, selfless sacrifice. And the motive in ver at the end of verse 9, I think, is fascinating. Don't repay evil with evil, insult for insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you might receive a blessing. Folks, this is fascinating. God calls us to this new life of obedience and life together, valuing it, and he promises that with it you inherit a blessing. And I think it's interesting that he doesn't say you earn a blessing, but that you instead inherit a blessing. Meaning, I don't work to have this blessing from God. It comes to me by virtue of being his son or his daughter, his child. The change of heart that God brings in our life leads to a change of life. It evidences conversion, but it does not earn our conversion. And in the gospel, I think it's fascinating when you go back to 1 Peter 2, 22, talking about Jesus. It says, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, notice the same word, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness for by his wounding we have been healed. Look, there's a beauty to how the gospel begins to inform my response to offense. Look at what Jesus did. He continued to love me in all of my brokenness. He died for me in all of my weakness. And by his grace, he has changed my life and given me hope and a future. And that's true for everyone that knows him personally. I want you to think of it this way, because I, when you read that, that portion of 1 Peter 2, it, there's a beauty here. His quiet suffering leads to saving. Okay? His quiet suffering, his non-reactive way, his humble demeanor, his submissiveness to the Father's will leads to our saving. And here's the other thing that's true. When the world around us sees a group of people who relate humbly to one another, it also has a saving influence on their lives. They see something in the body of Christ, in your marriage, in your home, they see something that is attractive, that is compelling, and that, that witness of being non-retaliating and doing good when it is undeserved becomes a demonstration of the gospel of Christ that the world we live in so desperately needs to see. Guys, realize this. We live in a world that is so broken, that is so fractured, that is so at odds 
Seems like the best thing you can do is go out and get in a protest and express your opinion in contrast to others. And typically in that environment, there's a danger that occurs. And that is that as a Christian, the ugly side of me can be drawn out. And I can begin to respond to wounding with wounding and feel justified. And I can respond to insult with insult. Someone was recently sharing with me a public meeting that they attended about a very controversial issue in our culture. They recounted how that meeting kind of went a little bit south. And there were some accusation and innuendos and critiques that at some levels were unfair, and some of them coming from Christians. Folks, there is nothing that damages the reputation of Christ more than an obnoxious Christian who is so right that they end up being wrong. Okay? And please, when I say that, as James always tells us, if I'm pointing one figure out of you saying that's true, I'm telling you the same thing. I am capable of the same thing. So we need to be careful when we're engaging that we do everything we can to protect the testimony of the body of Christ and the unity of the body of Christ because it is God's witness to the world. So be very careful when you are objecting. I'm not in any way calling for compromise. Truth is crucial. But the way you share that, the tone in which you share that is also crucial to be sure that it is not insult for insult, wound for wound. It's a very kind of delicate time in which we live and we need, we need Christians that are full of the wisdom of God and of the grace of God who understand that God has called them not to give insult for insult, but instead to be and to share a blessing, to give a a, a, a positive or, or helpful response, as did Christ. So let's look at verses 10 through 11. This is a quote from the Old Testament. So first question is, what simple directives pro- pro- protects life together? The next question is this, how can I enjoy life in an unfair world? And now watch, watch the way this verse begins. Whoever would love life and see good days, so I think that's, that's having life at its, at its best, if you will, to, to have a life that is enjoyable, something that I look forward to. Whoever would love life and see good days, notice what he says, they must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. Okay, now I believe this is the context here. It's the church in a culture that is hostile to what it stands for, okay? And that is certainly true of what was happening in the first century, okay? And I think increasingly, I believe that this is true in the world that you and I live in. All right, there is a, an inclination of hostility towards biblical truth. It is increasingly out of vogue, out of acceptance, okay? And so... How do we enjoy life when I'm in a context where I am on a somewhat regular basis experiencing antagonism towards what I as a Christian am called to stand for, okay? How do we do that? I think in verse nine, Peter's words are very clear. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech 
you must, this is fascinating, you must turn from evil. What is that? Turning from evil is the biblical concept of repentance. It's, 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 I'm living in the world I live in. I'm facing hostility at a somewhat elevated level, and I'm wondering where it's coming from. What's Peter's advice? If you're experiencing an, an unexpected level of hostility, okay, some, a greater level of hostility than most people around you, here's what you need to do. You must turn from the way that you've been operating, the way that you've been relating, and do good. Okay? You must shed sinful patterns and adopt more biblical patterns of living, of attitude, of thinking, of speaking. All right, so, so I have to turn from the evil options and instead do good. Matthew 5, 9 says this, God blesses peacemakers. They will be called the children of God. All right, so that, that, that peace-seeking kind of mindset that isn't, unusually antagonistic. It, it, it longs to get along in, in every situation where that is possible. So that when I have to take a stand, people can't say, well, you always act like that. All right, why? Because the pattern of my life has been to get along, to not give evil for evil, to turn from wrong patterns and to adopt better patterns of relating, to be known for being a peaceable person. So if I'm going to enjoy a, 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 a better life and I'm going to see good days, first of all, I must keep my tongue from evil and my lips from deceitful speech. I must turn from evil and do good. I must seek peace and pursue it. What happens then? Okay, and look at the next verse in this setting, verse 12. It says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Now watch what happens. As I begin to live a more amicable life, truth-filled but loving, serving others, caring about others, what happens? And watch what the text says. His eyes and ears are attentive. That is to say that God demonstrates towards that person active concern, support, and love. His eyes are on. His ears are open. Okay? Meaning, if you're living in a way that replicates the life of Christ in a context of hostility, but you, you're, you're wise as a serpent, you're harmless as a dove, you're being thoughtful about how you interact with people because you realize what's at stake. This text tells me that I will have a God who is for me, not opposed to me. Now look at the, look at the next part of the verse. The eye, verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And I think in context, it could be the Christian who is living in a sinful way, degrading the name of God. You will not have the blessing of God. Instead, you will have the opposition of God. And I think I could argue this from James chapter four and verse six. It says, God blesses the humble, but he opposes the proud. So anytime I am living with a sense of pride or, 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 or self-righteousness or arrogance, I invite God's opposition, not his help. And when I walk in humility and when I speak the truth in love, I invite God's help. 
I, I, I love the way this text describes God's presence because what it's doing is it's using anthropomorphic is the word I'm looking for, anthropomorphic terminology to describe attributes of God. His ears are attentive. He hears what you're saying as you pray and as you cry out in that situation. His eyes see everything that is going on. That gets into the realms of the omniscience of God. He is fully aware of the circumstances that you are going and he is caring for you. And that's the comfort that this text promises us. Remember as you resist hostility and as you seek to be gentle that it invites God's presence. James chapter five and verse four is interesting. It says this. It says the cry of unpaid workers, that is people who are being treated unjustly. Okay, the cry of unjust or of unpaid workers has reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. Now, if you're the person who is being slighted and wounded and dismissed and injured, does it not help to know that the ears of the Lord of heaven are attentive? What that means is this, I do not need to take justice into my own hands, I leave that in the hands of God. Okay, Romans 12 kind of captures this idea when it says in verses 17 and 19, it says, do not repay evil for evil to anyone. It's interesting, isn't it? That's without condition. Do not repay evil for evil to anyone. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone Never take revenge, my dear friends. Leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And here's what happens. When I slip into God's shoes, I get ugly real quick. Okay, retaliation almost always gets out of control. And I believe that's why when you look at this passage of Scripture, you look at Romans, you look at Psalm 34, that this, this concept, this idea of retaliating is expressly forbidden for a child of God because it completely decimates our testimony. Matthew 5, 5 is another verse that comes to mind. It says, blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. You know why I retaliate? You know why I react? Because I want what's mine. You're messing with my stuff. You're messing with my peace. I'm going to make you pay. You know what God says? Blessed are the peacemakers. Man, they inherit the earth. We forget that promise. We forget that 1 Peter 1, 3, our inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So why do I grab at temporal things? Why do I have to win? Why do I have to be so ugly and disruptive? God says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the humble. They get it all. And man, my heart fights against that. My heart thinks I have to have it now. And so we fight and we clamor. James chapter four, verse one says this. It says, what is the cause of fightings and quarrels among you? And you know what you wanted to say? My sibling, my fellow church member, my mate, my kids. No, you know what God says? 
the source of quarrels among you is your own evil desires. Controlling desires that diminish the work of the Spirit of God and all of those virtues at the beginning and make me ugly. So the general principle of verses 13 and 14, then real quick. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Do any of you have a kind of an odd response to that question? Who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? What does that seem to imply? Seems to imply that if I do the things that God has called me to do, life will go smoothly. Does that make sense? Watch what verse 14 does, okay? Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? I think what that means is, if you are eager to be Christ-like, if you're eager to do good, in some way you will quiet the noise of opposition, the clamor. You will in some way limit it because you're not stirring it up. Do you understand what I'm saying? What's coming against you is not coming against you because you've been ugly or difficult or arrogant. It's just what comes in the normal flow of life. So here, I think that the basic statement is this. Who is there to harm you if, 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 who's there to harm you if you're eager to do good? I think the answer is less people. Watch what verse 14 says. But even if you should suffer for what is right, so that, that kind of resolves the tension, right? The first thing seems to mean that if I live right, then I won't suffer opposition. So if I'm suffering opposition, I must not be living right. Ever felt that way? There must be a reason that I'm feeling this way. That's one way that we react. The other side is you treat me that way. I'm coming after you. Okay? So what does he say? He says, but even if you should suffer while doing what is right, you are blessed. Isn't that beautiful? Even if you suffer while doing what is right, you are blessed. Why? Because the eyes and ears of the Lord are open. He is observing. He keeps a clear, accurate record and is never unjust. He's never unjust. Even if you suffer while doing what is right, you are blessed because God is aware. And then he ends by saying this, and I love it. Do not fear their threats and do not be frightened. So if you are in the context of doing what is right and, and you face opposition, here's what Peter says, stay on the path. <laughs> Keep doing the right thing. If the right thing is bringing opposition, bear it. If you're doing the wrong thing, repent of it so that you don't endure opposition that is unnecessary. Does that make sense? What a, what a, what a beautiful portion of Scripture. And I love what Psalm 37 or 34 verses 17 and 18 say. And this just in conclusion, two thoughts. In seasons of injustice and suffering, we have a promise from God if we don't retaliate. Okay? In seasons of opposition and suffering, we have a promise of God if we refuse to retaliate. Here's the promise, Psalm 34, 17. It says the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them 
and he delivers them from all of their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are being crushed in spirit. Folks, I don't know about you, but I need that. Because that's the motivation to stay, to stay true to the virtues at the beginning, to not retaliate, to do good, to be a witness for God. What's the motivation? His eyes and ears are open. He sees it all. And when you cry out, he hears and he delivers. And if he chooses not to deliver, and he allows me to persist in a difficult situation, he is close to the brokenhearted. And he saves those. We're crushed in spirit. Folks, the beauty of it is this. His eyes and his ears see everything that's happening. Even when I suffer unjustly, his eyes are open and he sees. And how I respond has a very unique impact on the world around me. Because when the world around me sees me being mistreated, you know what they expect? They expect retaliation. And when they don't see retaliation, the light goes on the light of the world begins to shine because your response to that provocation is different than how I would have responded. What is the rationale? What's the driver for you? It's that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to our prayers. And this causes me to think in the New Testament of the first recorded martyrdom in Scripture, and that is of Stephen. Stephen is a, a man of God who is proclaiming the word of God. And for proclaiming the truth of God, the leadership of the, of the uh, Jewish establishment in Jerusalem comes after him. He is eventually condemned to death by stoning. And the Bible, it, it makes a fascinating statement. As, as this episode of the end of Stephen's life comes into view in scripture, it says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, Okay, here's, I'm going to take that. That is the favor of God's presence in the midst of his greatest moment of rejection. That's what Peter or Stephen is experiencing. The favor of God is coming. And it says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, was gazing steadily into heaven. And he saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them. So what's the narrative do? It says, here's what Stephen saw. And then here's what Stephen said in the context of ultimate injury and insult. Watch what it says. He told them, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing. Verse 57, they rushed at him and they laid their coats at the feet of a young man named, do you know the name? A young man named Saul who later becomes Paul in the New Testament. Folks, I want you to watch this. So Paul watches this. He watches Stephen give up his life deeply in love with God. Not as many would in that context, hurling insult, hurling condemnation, hurling judgment. No, Stephen takes it as the will of God. And they lay their coats at Saul's feet. And it say, here's what it says in the next verse. It says, Saul was in hearty agreement with what was happening. That's the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. When you get to chapter 9, what event do you find? 
you find the apostle or you find Saul of Tarsus confronted by the resurrected Lord and he is overcome. I believe at some level, Paul's response to that revelation of Christ is informed by his experience with Stephen. He saw a man die in a way he never saw a man die. And I can't help but believe that the way that Stephen responded was such a deep challenge to Paul's rebellion against God. He saw a man die in a way that could not be explained from human perspective, except that he saw the Son of Man standing, waiting for him to come. And I believe that his response to unjust suffering deeply affected Saul and caused him ultimately to become Paul, the apostle of Christ. When I was a kid, we sang a song in our church, and I hope that it will be an encouragement to you this morning, because I don't know what your situation is this morning. I don't know if you're going through a period of rejection. I don't know if you're going through a period of insult, a period of harm. I don't know what you're going through, but I know this text speaks to you. There's a song that captures it. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Folks, I know sometimes it's super hard to be true, to be loving, to withhold revenge to withhold insult when insulted, to withhold wounding when wounded. It's hard. It is so natural for us to fight back. But we are at our ugliest when we fight back. And we are at our best when we respond with blessing. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, as we conclude our time in your word this morning, and as we prepare to sing a song of praise, in response to your truth. How desperately, Lord, we need your help to not retaliate, to express the evidence of the Spirit of God in our lives towards those that so desperately need to see it. Lord, we pray that your strength would fill us by the Spirit so that we could be uncommon people, lights to the world in which you have called us to live. So fill us by your spirit that we may be brilliant lights for Jesus Christ, our Savior. Protect us from retaliating. Help us to love. And we pray for these blessings in the beautiful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Would you stand with us as we close our service? I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I raise a hallelujah louder than my unbelief. I raise a hallelujah. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this time when we get to receive your word. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that this time, uh, that these words would seep deeply into our hearts, Lord, that we would learn to, to live peacefully and lovingly, uh, but stand firmly for truth, Lord. Uh, that is how we break through the hardness of the hearts of the world, Lord. Lord, I thank you for the words of Pastor Tim. I thank you that uh, he was able to to preach this morning, even though he uh, had a little bit of an incident, Lord. And we also thank you that nothing happened. <clears throat> I thank you for the love of his brother <laughs> and, uh, and his daughters. <clears throat> Father, I pray for each of us as we leave this place this morning. Lord, uh, uh, let your word, again, just seep deeply into our hearts, Lord, and uh, protect everyone on our way home. And uh, Lord, I pray that... Uh, we would just be excited again to come and worship you next week. In Jesus' name, amen.